0: In one sense, it's good that the retreat is coming close to the end, because the questions are getting harder and harder to answer, (laughs) so I think we're going to just end up at exactly the right time. (laughs) I've done a lot of practice, and although there has been some personal purification, my mind is still the size of a pea. (laughs) When does my consciousness expand? I'm running out of money. (laughs) One question that came to mind when I read that is, how does one measure one's size of consciousness? It seems more like the perception of it as being big or small uh, is most likely a preconception and a concept rather than some accurate appraisal. I think the very important thing to understand in terms of really measuring the practice, measuring the benefit, is to bring it back to something very pragmatic, very simple. In the moment, in a moment, is there greed, is there hatred, is there delusion? or is there not?" And it's that simple, because what we're working on is a process of purification. That's the transformation that takes place. It's not a question of big or small or altered states or anything like that. There may be many different kinds of experiences that happen. There could be as much greed in an expanded state of consciousness, as in a smaller contracted state, and there could be more wisdom at a time when we're dealing with a lot of pain or a lot of tension or some strong emotion. There could be more wisdom in that than when the mind feels very spacious and very open if there's attachment there or identification. And so the real measure really is in the quality of mindfulness, the presence or absence of the skillful and unskillful roots of mind. Sometimes I think that the practice is so difficult because it's so simple. And that if somehow we gave ourselves a more complicated task, a more complex task, it would gratify some part of our mind that thrives on complexity. One of the joys of practice over the years is to actually feel the mind and observe the mind becoming simpler and simpler. Doesn't mean simple-minded. Joseph, please address this. It's about God again. (laughs) I like your answers to the previous batch of God questions, but still something feels missing. If you were really up against the wall, say, for example, your foot was caught in the tracks and a train was bearing down on you, would you call on your purity, your morality, your dana, your insight, or would you cry for help to the god of your Jewish heritage? It seems that when humans are in trouble, they cry out, they don't look in. (laughs) Is that a surrender and a purity that instinctively comes to the fore in times of crisis? Or it is something, in your opinion, that is based in ignorance and is therefore subject to investigation and possible retraining of thought? Six more days. (laughs) It actually is quite an interesting question because the question revolves about what we take refuge in. You know, what is our refuge? And for different people, depending on their life experience, they will take refuge in different things. I think that in times of crisis, what we resort to is what has served us in our lives as a refuge. the question also brought up several several kind of related thoughts about it you know it said that gandhi as he was assassinated his last word as he was assassinated was ram right the, the name of god for hindu but i think the ram of gandhi was very different than might have been meant in the question, "Please stop the train, God," you know, not a cry for help, but rather cry or declaration of a reminder of actually being present. You know, and so, when Gandhi called out "Ram" at the moment of being shot it feels much more like a declaration of presence, a declaration of awareness, declaration of connection with what was most pure in his mind. That's not very different than the refuge in mindfulness, in awareness, in actually being present in the moment. It's a very different relationship to an understanding of God than as some being outside of ourselves. Some grandmother or grandfather up there who's going to save us in times of need. It's just a very different conception. And so again, it depends what has served us as a refuge in our lives. Sometimes it can get confusing. in that we may have something that has really been a refuge for us, but we can misapply it. Quite a few years ago, I was visiting friends in Hawaii, we're out on this beach where there were quite big waves coming in. And I'm not so familiar with playing in the ocean in big waves. And The few experiences I've had with them, I kind of get tumbled over and rolled around in the sand and basically unpleasant. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm out in the ocean and there, these waves are coming in. And I see this huge wave (laughs) coming at me. (laughs) My instinctive reaction was really without thought. It's really quite embarrassing. (laughs) Turned around, sat down, (laughs) cross-legged. It wasn't the right refuge. So, in, <laughs> in addition to taking refuge, I think we need some discriminating wisdom <laughs> as to what actually is appropriate in the moment. It's one of those moments that live forever. <laughs> During a moment of mindfulness, there are no defilements, and we retrain the mind. During concentration, there also are no defilements arising. So why is concentration poo-pooed as a path to liberation, since liberation is a piece of freedom from the defilements? This is a somewhat related question. I find myself disturbed by reports of people who have meditated for many years yet have still performed unwholesome deeds that will affect other people's lives. I wonder, could this happen to me? Could there be these pockets of delusion that would allow someone to disregard ethics or abandon social conscience? Areas that meditation glosses over and turns us into, at best, a happy neurotic or at worst, someone who uses the Dharma to satisfy their own desires. Delusion by its own nature keeps us from seeing it clearly. I once was convinced I had had an enlightenment experience, but when I told Sayadaw about it, he didn't bother to look up from his book. <laughs> I took this to mean no. <laughs> was I deluded or just mistaken? When do we know if meditation is working for us, or more specifically, How do we know if meditation isn't working for us? The more I meditate, the more unsure I become of conventional means to evaluate my experiences. Please address these issues as I've been dogged by them, these nagging doubts for the whole retreat. There are really two two parts to the question, which I touched on briefly already. How do we measure? How do we know whether the practice, whether all our efforts are actually fruitful or not? And the Buddha was asked this question. He was asked the question in terms of people who had heard a lot of different teachings, who had done a lot of different practices, and they said, "How how should we judge? How do we know who to believe? How do we know what's correct? And he said something very, very simple. So take a look at your own mind and see if what you're doing is strengthening the force of greed, is strengthening the force of hatred, strengthening the force of delusion. If what you're doing is in that direction, those things should be abandoned. He said to take a look into our own minds and to see, is our practice, is our life leading us in the direction of weakening the forces of greed and hatred and delusion? If it is, then that's to be cultivated. And so we need to look, we really need to examine when we're mindful, when the mindfulness is strong, when the mindfulness is active, what is the quality of our mind? Is the mind at that time filled with unwholesome qualities, or is it filled with wholesome ones? It's not a mystery. It's not something that can't be understood by ourselves. We simply have to look, and look carefully. When is it that our mind is most filled with with desire, or most filled with with anger, or most filled with fear? Is it when we're being mindful or when we're not being mindful? No, and so there's a very clear measure for us. The problem comes in, and I think it's because as a culture and as a society, we've been conditioned to be tremendously judgmental. You know, And as we all know, all of us who have really sat and looked at our minds, the judging mind is... Very prevalent it 's a very strong habit you know in us, and so the tendency as we begin to observe our minds and we see the different galas, we see the different defilements, we see them clearly, we tend very often just to judge ourselves and to judge them and we s- it's like all of a sudden we 're confronted with all the bad news. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is this what the practice is doing? And so need to be careful not to confuse the seeing of the different khalasas that arise in the mind with the strengthening of them, which happens when we're lost in them, when we're deluded about them, when we don't know that they're present. Going back to the first of those questions, Concentration should not at all be understood as being pooh poot because concentration is a powerful force in the mind, it's one of the spiritual faculties, it is the basis for wisdom. And the Buddha said over and over again that wisdom arises out of a concentrated mind. You know, and we know that when, when our mind is very restless or very agitated, it's difficult to see clearly. We don't have a clear vision of what's actually happening. And so the development of concentration is tremendously important, and a lot of the work that we do in practice is strengthening that. What's also important to understand is that concentration without insight, without wisdom into the three characteristics. Does not uproot the kalesis from the mind. That while the concentration is there, the mind is tranquilized and is pure. When the concentration falls away, as it will, because it's another conditioned mind state, unless there has been penetrating insight into the nature of the mind, and by that I mean the awareness on deeper and deeper levels of the three characteristics you know, of impermanence, of dukkha, of selflessness, then when we come out of the concentration, it is possible for the kalesis to arise again. And so the Buddha emphasized and the, the, the heart of the teaching is not simply to develop deep concentration, but to use it as the basis. For real purification. This question is somewhat related. It said, What falls away at each of the stages of enlightenment? And at what stage is there no more rebirth? Please answer. I need something to look forward to. <laughs> so I thought I'd <laughs> give you an answer. <laughs> it's only. 800 pages long, (laughs) I'm going right to the back though. One of the great joys of Buddhism is the lists. If you're into lists, this is the right path. There are lots of different groupings of unwholesome mind states. And I just wanted to read to you the names of the groupings so you get a sense of what's involved. What are the kinds of states that ought to be abandoned? The fetters, the defilements, the wrongnesses, the worldly states, the kinds of avarice, the the perversions, the ties, the bad ways, the cankers, the floods, the bonds, the hindrances. Misperceptions, inherent tendencies, clinging stains, unprofitable courses of action, unprofitable thought arisings. <laughs> so when you ask the question, <laughs> what falls away at each of the stages, it then goes on. Which of the defilements, which of the stains, which of the cankers, which of the... <laughs> and so forth. I'll just read a few of them <laughs> because it's quite long so that you get a sense of the progression of the course of purification. In the case of the defilements, wrong view and doubt are eliminated at the, at the first stage of enlightenment. It's called stream entry. Hatred is eliminated at the third stage. It's called anagami, or non-returner. Greed, delusion, conceit, Mental stiffness, agitation, consciencelessness, are eliminated by the final stage by arhantship. And so you see that some of these, some of these uh, defilements, or okay, laces in the mind, are very deep-rooted. Some are not uprooted until the final stage of enlightenment. In the case of the hindrances, we're familiar with them. The hindrance of doubt is eliminated at the first stage. Lust, ill will, and worry are eliminated only at the third stage of enlightenment. Stiffness and torpor, sloth and torpor, and agitation are only eliminated at the final stage, at arhanship. So make friends. (laughs) You know. These qualities of mind that we've really been working with over these three months that you see again and again, they're deeply rooted. And so it's really a big task. What we're what we're undertaking here is enormous. You know, it really has to do with the purification of consciousness. And looking at these forces which have driven us through endless, endless lifetimes, countless lifetimes, it's the very forces of consciousness which keep us bound. Some people hear that and get discouraged. I get really inspired. Yeah, I think. okay. <laughs> Because there's a way to do it, and you see the way, you know the way, and it's not complicated. It needs what one Zen master called a long-enduring mind. It's not like the quick fix of Western culture. (laughs) Sometimes I'm amazed, you know, every some years I'll go to one of these fast food places, and it's amazing to me, where you drive in, you call in your order to the mic, and by the time the car reaches the window, the food is... (laughs) 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 We need to learn a lot of patience, you know, as a culture, and as coming from this Western culture, as we undertake, this Dharma practice, it's not like that. We don't call our order into the mic, you know, and at the end of three months, we end up fully cooked. <laughs> but, what is so, but what is so striking to me is how at whatever stage we are in the development of the spiritual faculties, those strengths of mind that actually lead to the purification, that whatever stage we are in their development, there still can be so much insight into the nature of the mind, how suffering is created, and how to free ourselves from it all along the way. And how do we do that? We do it by observing, just by seeing, by looking. Fear is a kind of aversion, and so that goes at the third, third stage, that anagami. It said, you know, in the sort of Buddhist culture, the meditation culture, that the first two stages of enlightenment are difficult, but doable. The jump between the second and third is a big one because it's at the third that desire or sense desire and aversion is uprooted from the mind. One time, it was a couple of retreats ago, for the first time I had this thought, and it didn't last long, but the fact that it came at all was very striking to me. I was just sitting and meditating, and the thought came, well, why don't you just stop desiring? Was, the thought came as a possibility, well, just stop it. <laughs> and then I thought of all the myriad desires you know, that were still there, and it impressed me with the magnitude of what that third stage is about, of really freeing the mind from desire arising. So that's a big one. And that's the place that fear goes, that fear goes. It's really interesting to see the connection between fear and desire. Those two are very related. When there's strong fear in the mind, look underneath it to see what the desire is that we're afraid is not going to happen. Very often, there's a desire lurking behind the fear. And so to get that often is to unhook oneself from it. What is the process happening when ordinary things like a cup of tea become fascinating and beautiful to look at? Few things might be happening. (laughs) In this context, I think it has to do with uh, quite strong attention. You know, what makes something beautiful and absorbing, really is a mind that is seeing very clearly without concept, without thought. And so when the mind is really still, when the mind is quiet, the simplest things can take on a tremendous vitality. And you know that very well. Mm -hmm. From the outside, if somebody came here from the outside and saw what you have just done for the last three months. It's basically incomprehensible, lift, move, place, hour after hour. It's very strange, but in the experience of it, because the attention is so precise, And because, at least at times, the mind is actually not thinking, not conceptualizing, but just in the experience, we can actually be with the simplest things, whether it's a movement or a sight or a sound or a sensation, and be totally absorbed in it. Absorbed not in a trance-like way, but our attention very complete, and there's a tremendous beauty in that. You no, know, in many ways, it's really the beauty of poetry. Of just uncluttered vision. I think it was uh, a book by Aldous Huxley talked about cleansing the doors of perception. You know, when those doors are cleansed, everything seems so clear. And that's what we're doing in our practice. That's what mindfulness does. This tremendous clarity and luminosity when our minds are still, even still to some extent. These are a few related ones. What does it mean that there is a psychic projection at the time of death? If the insights and understandings I've had on this retreat were manifested in my life, I would be a profoundly different person, and those around me would be deeply affected. Can you comment on the gap between insight and meaningful change in behavior? Seeing that the simple world of just this one moment is more ultimately real and satisfying than the immense complex story world usually regarded as reality, how to not get caught in the stories, ours and others, and lose the simple truth and peace and satisfaction of the moment. These are all related in the sense that the psychic projections at the time of death are really no different than the psychic projections happening all the time. Psychic projection means a thought form, you know, or an image in the mind. And they're happening, as you well know, nearly continuously. The mind is continually creating these thought forms and projections. At the time of death, they may take a particular shape or have a particular intensity, but they're no different, in essence, than the very thought creations that are happening all the time. And so our task, both now and at the time of death, is to see clearly what's what, to see what is happening. These last few days of the retreat, they really are like a bardo. You know, it's, you're in an in-between world, right? It's like the end of retreat, but not quite reborn in the outside world. And what's happening in the mind now? What's happening for many of you is the production in the mind of all kinds of thoughts and fantasies and imagining and planning and meeting people and fulfillment of desires and fears and all the projections of the mind about what's going to happen when you leave. Don't throw this opportunity away. You know, don't sort of give up on the energy of the retreat and just kind of go swimming around in this Bardo state. because that's exactly what happens, you know, according to some of the teachings, at the time of death. All of these projections start coming, and unless the mind has been trained, get lost in it, go swimming in it again, either with grasping or with fear or with aversion or with judgment or whatever particular conditioning we have. This time now is such a precious gift to see clearly the workings of the mind particularly as it is creating all of these forms. Don't get into a struggle about not having them appear. This is a common mistake that people make because these things often start flooding in at the end of a retreat. If there's the thought, oh, well, this shouldn't be happening, I'm losing the practice, I might as well just wind down, that's incorrect. It's quite natural that it's happening. This is what happens at the end of the retreat. It's natural that the mind will have more thoughts and planning and imaginings and all that stuff. The immense challenge, both now and at the time of death, and all the time in between, (laughs) is to see what is going on, not to get lost in this. The thought of who you're going to meet when you leave is not that person. It is only a thought. It's only another little thought, just like the 10 million thoughts that have come through all along. It has no substance. But if we're not mindful, if we don't make the effort to really be attentive to how these thought forms are arising, we get seduced over and over again. We get lost in the world, we get lost in the fantasy, we get lost in the dream. And so, particularly at this time, it's so valuable, there can be so much insight. In the Tibetan tradition, they say how, for a mind that's trained, the bottle provides this wonderful opportunity for enlightenment. It's all that in everything that we're experiencing now. And so really, <laughs> take interest in it, because it's an when we see how it's happening, it reveals to us just what those other questions was, were asking about. How can I not lose it when I, when I leave the retreat? Why don't we just stay in the clarity and the peace of the moment? This is precisely the issue. Can we stay awake in the face of all these projections, or do we just give up our efforts? This is a particularly interesting and insightful time. Again, it's not that these things shouldn't be happening. It's to really use this time to understand this particular working of the mind. That's what's, that's what's fascinating about having put in the effort to strengthen the quality of mindfulness, the observing power. You have the power to really see this. Please explain the nature of what goes life to life. What is it made of? How does it remember the karma? Signed, the skeptic of boogeymen. What is the process by which karmic deeds are passed from one life to the next? How do you know if you have worked out the unfavorable karma from an unskillful act in this life or not? It seems that the heavier ones can't be atoned for in this life, even if you become very clear. One of the most difficult things to see clearly and to understand is that consciousness and material things, although interrelated, are quite distinct. And so there's a process of consciousness that is going on which is not limited to the physical form, to the material elements. They're related and we've been looking at the relationship all of these months. But that consciousness itself is a distinct process from the material elements which is precisely why at the time of death there's death consciousness followed by rebirth consciousness. And so even though this body, the physical elements of the body has died and the elements dispersed, there is a carryover from one moment of consciousness to another, death consciousness, rebirth consciousness, carrying on that link of conditioning I was trying to think of an example of this, and this is what came to mind, but please don't press me on it, because it may have its own limitations. But I was thinking of You turn on the TV, and you see some program, you see some whatever's on. And then maybe the TV dies. You know, It breaks, goes to the junkyard, it disperses. You get a new TV, and you turn it on, and you pick up just <laughs> You know, the soap opera is just continuing, just where it left off. The TV has gone the way of, you know, old junk. But the programming keeps coming through the airwaves. It's something like that. (laughs) You know, this, this is the TV. Right. And it serves us to sort of illuminate or reveal this whole comic process. But this breaks down after a while. You know, and, but it doesn't mean that the programming is finished. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> uh, One of, the, one of the really interesting things to see in the practice itself is to begin to get glimpses, at least, of consciousness as being a process. You now that we can really observe for ourselves, not, of course, in the detail that the Buddha saw of 17 trillion mind moments in a, you know, a flash, but we can begin to really see very directly experience directly consciousness, this knowing as a process arising and passing away. When we have that insight into how consciousness is doing that right now, then it's much easier to intuit how that process simply happens at the moment of death and rebirth. Because we see it as distinct from the physical elements. Um, And again, this, this... This comes just through our repeated observation of this process of using ourselves as this laboratory. This is the second time for this question. I didn't (coughs) get to it the first time. You know, in one of the previous. How do we understand the fact that the Buddha left his wife and child to discover the truth. This has bothered me for a long time. I can imagine what it might mean on an archetypal level. And in parentheses, an unenlightened life is not worth living, etc. But I've never heard anybody talk about this. I just can't imagine a woman Buddha doing the same. <laughs> I often wonder what his child felt. Is there anything in the literature that speaks about how the Buddha redressed the situation? The teaching is about cause and effect. Our actions have tremendous significance. This action does not exemplify that. I don't like it as an example. Why not discovering the truth through your wife and child? This question has actually come up over the years, you know, quite a few different times and it's a complicated one. On the one hand, there is a very great emphasis on non-harming behavior and on understanding cause and effect, and the consequences of actions. What I think needs very sensitive attention in this question is that need to look at any action, both in a very, we need to look at the action in an appropriate frame, and also with a great uh, inner depth. Uh, I'll explain that a little bit. One very, or, or the key element in ethical behavior is the purity of the motivation what the motivation actually is. This is very hard to know from the outside. And from the inside, we can often be deluded. So that's why a lot of care is needed. It's very hard for us to know really what the motivation of another person is. And in ourselves, we need to be very careful that we don't rationalize acts based on desire, based on greed, based on aversion, that we don't rationalize those in the name of some concept of purity, but where the motive actually is not pure. And so in this regard, when we look at the bodhisattva's action at that time, what's really necessary to look at is... What was the motive? What was the quality of purity in that moment? So that's one piece. The other piece is that sometimes we judge and act in a very limited time frame. And then when we have a bigger time frame, we actually see that the wholeness of that situation, which from one perspective might have looked unskillful or unwholesome or difficult or causing of suffering, from a slightly different perspective, from a slightly bigger frame, we see that it actually was conducive of tremendous well-being and tremendous happiness. In the Buddha's case, it turns out that he left, became enlightened, came back, and along with many other people taught both his wife and his son, they became fully enlightened. If you also see this story over lifetimes, the fact that the Buddha and his wife had been together, the Bodhisattva and his wife had been together for countless lifetimes in this striving Towards enlightenment, and then in fact it said, "I'll just back up a little here." In the course of our path, we make, or we we can make many different aspirations. Some people have the aspiration to become Buddha. Some people have the aspiration to become the chief disciples of the Buddha. Some people have the aspiration to become the wife of the Buddha to be, or the child of the Buddha. And so when we look at even the bigger picture, we see that these things and these situations and these causes are not just one little piece. We have to see it in the context of the long history involved in what actually is happening. Care is needed. Again, I think that the subtlety of this question has to do that we don't use this understanding as a rationalization for motives in ourselves which actually are unskillful. Because that can easily be done. So somehow it's both of these. And that's, that's how I understand it. Um, it said that when the, when the Bodhisattva left home and was practicing all the disciplines in the forest, that his wife, Yasodhara, actually undertook the same disciplines. You know, uh, at home in the, in the palace that she was living in. And so when the Bodhisattva came back, it's like uh, there was a real oneness, uh, which is why enlightenment came so quickly. And so the picture is often much bigger and deeper than we can see just from looking at something uh, superficially. For years I renounced sexual relationships, for the most part in order to give more time and energy to dharma practice. Most of the time there was contentment with this choice, because it felt like the right one for that time in my life. But because there was attachment, there was also quite a lot of suffering over this choice. Craving, loneliness, deprivation, and the sense of a life passing without full participation in the human enterprise. Recently, I've become sexually active again, with the intention to make this a part of the practice. This choice has brought quite a lot of genuine love, good fellowship, and joy, all of which have felt like the fruits of Dhamma work. But there has been attachment too, and thus strong suffering, craving, grief, anger, excessive delusion, and projection, and general craziness. When your heart is pure, all things in your world are pure," Ryokan says. When the heart is pure, sexuality is an easy joy, either in celibacy or in relationship with one another. But for me, the force of sexuality is so strong that it tends to tangle powerfully with the kalesas and to rouse them to fury more than any other aspect of life, whether I am celibate or in relationship. Often it feels as if one is damned if one does, and damned if one doesn't. This is the least resolved part of my life, the part that causes the most unhappiness. Can you suggest skillful ways to integrate sexuality into a life dedicated to Dhamma, either through renunciation or through relationship? There has been no sexual misconduct. I have heeded and practiced the advice to distinguish between love and desire and I've watched vigilantly for all the Galaces and have observed their effects, sometimes like an awed bystander watching a three alarm fire. Anything else? (laughs) That's a big question. It's a big question in one way, and a simple question in another way. It's big because that's a very powerful force in our lives. It's a powerful energy. As we know, there are times when it gets so strong, and we see in the world, it really can drive people crazy. It drives people to do
1: incredibly
0: unskillful things, caught up in the force of sexual desire. And so in that sense, really respecting the power of this energy. It's it's tremendously strong at times. Then the question is what to do with it. How does one relate to it? Obviously, there's no one answer for everybody here because we all relate to it and make our choices a variety of conditioning and ways we choose to live out our lives. But what's simple about it is that whether we choose to be in relationship and deal with sexual energy in that way, or whether we choose to be celibate, whether for our lifetimes or for periods of time. The simplicity has to do with understanding what our practice is about. And what our practice is about is not and cannot be avoiding suffering. That's not possible. And so, whether we're in relationship or whether we choose celibacy, in different forms and in different ways, there are going to be times of suffering, times of the mind and the heart contracting, of getting tight in some way or another. The simplicity of the task is not to lay is not to lay the cause of the suffering onto the choice we've made. It's not that if we do this, there's suffering, if we do that, there's no suffering. Either way, at times, there's gonna be suffering. And so the task then is not really have to do with our sexuality and our choices. It really has to do with how well we can understand the suffering that's arising in the moment. There's anger in the mind, there's jealousy in the mind, there's envy in the mind, there's disappointment, there's loneliness. Whatever particular form the suffering takes, can we become very incisive, deeply incisive, about how we're relating to that particular feeling, that particular mind state, that's arising in that moment. The problem is that we generalize too much. Something arises, some suffering arises, and we either generalize it to be how we are. I'm this kind of person. I'm a person filled with loneliness. I'm a person filled with envy. I'm a person filled with fear. That's huge. That's making a, it's going to take 10 lifetimes of therapy to work that one out. And it's a concept. It's not really what's happening. What's happening is that due to certain conditions, a particular kind of suffering is happening in a particular moment. Our task is, in that moment, how are we relating to it? How are we getting caught? How are we getting hooked? How can we open? Something happened just recently, which there was a certain interaction that happened, and it was really painful for me. I and mean, it just felt, you know, like a knife in the heart. And it was so interesting to me, at least from this perspective now.
1: <laughs>
0: looking back on this process, because I just watched my mind. For, I mean, at first there was just the initial reaction to the, so, the heart just, you know, totally closed down and contracted. And the first, the first response was to generalize it, was to place the cause for the suffering on you know, what had happened, and this person did this, this, and this, and the mind putting it outside of myself. But I really appreciated the, the fruit of all the practice, because it didn't take so long just to, to bring about, okay, what's going on inside? What's, what solidity inside did the knife hit? Because if there had just been total open space, the knife just would have sailed through. There wouldn't have been a problem. And so the cause of suffering did not have to do with the knife. It had to do with how I was relating to it. and It's how I was relating to a certain experience. And just to work that, To really work the heart in that way became so interesting of seeing that place of contracting, of holding, of resisting, of all the things that we do, of blaming. And to see that actually in a moment we can open, we can let go of the suffering. This is the great joy of the practice because it is tremendously empowering. Our suffering or not suffering does not depend on conditions. It doesn't depend on whether we're in a sexual relationship or whether we're celibate. In both of those situations, and in in all our other situations, things are going to happen around which we're going to contract, or react, or something you see that it doesn't really have to do with the circumstances. It's our own work in the moment, and that we have the power. And it's really the power of wisdom, of seeing clearly, and a willingness, a strong willingness not to blame, not to generalize, but just to really look in ourselves. There's suffering here. How is it being created in this very moment? And in this very moment, there's freedom possible. And what is so interesting to me, to me this is applied dharma. This is what our practice is about. It's the Four Noble Truths. There's suffering, there's a cause of suffering, there's an end of suffering, there's a way to end it. And it's in these very everyday examples where it's applied. Well, that's, that's the beauty of our practice. It's not something that's just done sitting on a zatho. Two other things I wanted to mention about this question. One has to do with the understanding of the Buddhist cosmology, and this whole idea of rebirth and many lifetimes. I have a strong confidence in this, not everybody necessarily does, but when one does, it takes a lot of pressure off. You know, there's, see different desires arising in the mind, a different, there's a sense, well, it doesn't all have to happen this lifetime. You know, it happens this lifetime, it happens next life. It's easy, it's real easy. And increasingly, increasingly I have the sense of just how quick our life is. It just goes so quickly. We don't have to pressure ourselves. We don't have to have this incredible pressure that everything, I need to have every possible experience within this weekend of life. There's lots of time. In fact, as long as there is desire in the mind, there will be opportunity to fulfill it. (laughs) So, there's no need to worry, you know. (laughs) It makes for a much more relaxed life. You know, we kind of just, we make our choices with as much wisdom as possible. We deal with the suffering that comes, regardless of what choice we make, and we just go on in the task of purifying ourselves, purifying consciousness. There's there's an ease and a spaciousness to that. one last little piece on this. It has to do with the application of the understanding of anatta, of selflessness, to this whole question of desire. Any kind of desire. Anything. Anger, desire. You can name one's vice. It's to understand very deeply, and to look very carefully, to use the power of the mindfulness and the observation. And this is so beautiful, when you see that it is the desire which is desiring. It's not that there's someone there who has the desire, And so for that one to be happy, the desire needs to be fulfilled. That's the big illusion. That's the dream we're living in. There's no one to whom the desire belongs. Desire arises as a quality in the mind, and it's the desire which is desiring in a particular manner. You see, I mean, we'll make different choices with regard to it. Does this make some sense? (laughs) Because it's so beautiful when we can see that, when we don't personalize even these very strong forces in the mind, when we see them as being essentially selfless. From that perspective, There's a lot more spaciousness to make our choices and to hopefully bring some wisdom into our choices because they don't refer back to who we are. And so we can really let go a lot of the obsession, a lot of the compulsiveness, a lot of the fear, The fear of missing something, or the fear of not getting, or the kind of addictive quality. We see that it's just that force in the mind doing its thing. So there's a lot of wonderful questions here. Come back next year. Use this time, as I said earlier, this evening. It's an interesting time. It is a Bardo state. All of these mental projections are happening. The mind is creating visions of your rebirth. It is. That's just what it's doing. Can you stay clear with it? Can you see that there are only visions in the mind? It's not the reality, they're just their sights, and their thoughts, and their sounds, and Use this opportunity to gain insight into that, because there's a tremendous liberating force in that understanding.